You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. This is our last Sunday morning service of 2022 together. Sad. Um, But as we look back, and and, you know, I don't want to get into all the details, but I'll just say this about 2022. It's been quite the year. Agreed? Yeah. Um, Yet through it all, the Lord has been faithful to us. Through thick and thin, through the highs and lows, uh, he was with us, and he continues to build his church. Amen? So I'm looking forward to the year ahead. Um, But talking about building his church, I think it's fitting then that that we're going to be ending the year with a passage which calls us as the church to humbly come together in unity in order to remember and give thanks for what Jesus has done for us. And so we're going to be turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 17 and reading to 34. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn with me there. It'll be behind me as well on the screen. So this is the Apostle Paul writing his letter to the church in Corinth. And he writes to them, he says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. But when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself." That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. So 
So as most of you know, in, in just about every single Sunday morning service here at the gate, we participate in something called communion, also known um, by some as the Lord's Supper or as the Eucharist, which comes from the Greek word for thanksgiving. And when it's time to partake, we, we usually walk to the front of the room, we pick up a piece of cracker and a really, really tiny cup of juice, and then we proceed to consume it together as we're led to do so, right? And the primary reason that we do this is because Jesus has instructed us to. He taught this simple ritual, or rather this sacrament, to his disciples on the night he was betrayed, arrested, and sentenced to death at the cross, And he told them to do it often as a proclamation and reminder of his sacrificial death for our sin and how it unifies us with God and with each other under a new covenant. Which also means then that Christians have been partaking in communion in some form or another for almost 2,000 years following the tradition and teaching of the apostles. That's that's. Amazing to think about, right? That we've been proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again for 2,000 years. That's, that's amazing to think about. But what isn't amazing, though, is that over that same period of time, this very practice has consistently been a major point of contention and division among believers and between Christian denominations. Even today, Christians still quarrel and disagree with each other about the theological meaning and mystical implications of eating Jesus' metaphorical body and blood and also over the extra-biblical rules and legalistic regulations some have placed over it, like who can take it and, and who can't and how it should be taken and how often and so on and so forth. Which, which means that the very thing which Jesus gave us, that was supposed to remind us of of our salvation in him and draw us into communion with God while unifying believers together as the body of Christ, became the very thing which so often pulls us apart. That's pretty brutal. But as we read in the passage this morning, this this isn't a new problem, Right? The believers in Corinth had also managed to use and abuse the Lord's Supper to the point that it was causing even more division and brokenness in their church community and on top of everything else that was going on there. The Apostle Paul even tells them that it's so bad, in fact, that when they gather together, it does more harm than good. Can you imagine if the Apostle Paul showed up at our church and then at the end, he's like... Now, this, this service doing more harm than good. That, that would suck. But that's what he's telling them. He's like, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. More than that, he says that they're, they're perverting their gatherings and, and the application of the Lord's Supper to the degree that they're actually heaping judgment and discipline upon themselves. So, so what's going on? How, how, how could they be messing up something Seemingly so simple as communion. Well, first off, we have to understand that it was quite common 
for the early church communities to gather together for shared meals, similar to our potlucks today. And these shared meals would be called agape feasts or love feasts. And, and these meals would often be concluded with partaking of the Lord's Supper together. And, and since early Christians didn't have a, a dedicated building or synagogue to meet in, these, these types of gatherings would be held in someone's home. This usually would have been someone in the community who was wealthy enough to have a house big enough to host everyone. That makes sense, right? And so this seems to be the type of gathering which Paul's commenting on here, though, of course, the same lesson or application can certainly be applied to simply when they meet for worship as well, since that would have been in a home too. Anyways, the, the issue at play here was that their, their conduct and attitude at those gatherings was putting some of them to shame, it was dishonoring others, and in so doing was making a mockery of the Lord's Supper itself. For when they met together, they, they weren't doing it for mutual edification or encouragement in faith or, or to share with one another, which is what we're instructed to do so often in Scripture as believers. Rather, many of them were attending these, these meals and, and gatherings with selfish intentions and superior attitudes, which only served to highlight the disparity between the wealthy and the poor among them. In fact, Paul writes that, that what they were doing couldn't even be considered as eating the Lord's Supper at all. He's like, what you're doing is not the Lord's Supper. Because they were doing it in such an unworthy manner. For example, the wealthier among them, Paul points out, would start eating without waiting for everyone to show up. You know, a lot of the working class or the poor or the servants or whatever, they would be working later in the evening, right? So the wealthier people would show up, start eating without them. And it says they only ate with people of the same social class as them. And some were getting drunk and having their fill, while others were giving nothing to eat at all and going hungry. It's no surprise that some of them were getting sick and dying. As it says in one of my commentaries, it says, The food was supposed to be brought together for all to share, with the rich bringing more and the poor less. However, cliques were established and the food was divided inequitably. The rich took their lion's share and became gluttons and the poor remained hungry. So they were bringing contempt on the church of God and humiliating the poor. So we, we might be thinking, well, how could they do that, right? And so th this kind of attitude might seem surprising and, and even out of place for us. I mean, can you imagine showing up to a potluck here one evening and finding out that, that only the wealthier people or only the people who brought the food got to eat first and then the others had to wait until these people had their fill? Can you, can you imagine if you showed up to a potluck and it was like that today? That, that would be problematic, right, to say the least. Time to find a different church, right? Um, though, supposedly, in, in Greco-Roman culture, this, this wasn't that out of place for quite often when a wealthy family would host a dinner in their home for their fraternal organization or a guild feast or whatever it was, they, they would invite their main guests to join them in their, their, their main dining room hall but then as a courtesy, they would also open up their home to both the, the less fortunate, uh, whether those from the working class and even to slaves or servants. And, and, they would, and those people would gather together in a separate 
but, but adjacent overflow room or, or in the courtyard or something, depending on the style of the home. This was so that once the main guests had, had drunk enough and had their fill of the food, they could then offer their leftovers, along with some other simple food items maybe, to those in the overflow room. Right? So this practice was actually seen in their culture as an act of charity or kindness. And it also ensured that no food would go to waste. Does that make sense? So in that context, it is kind of charitable, right? Um, it's quite possible then that this common cultural practice, which also inherently separated the haves from the have-nots, is what was being experienced during their church dinner functions as well. So they were just doing what their, what their culture normally did. As Nigel Watson writes, no doubt there were affluent Christians in the church at Corinth who took for granted that such differentiations were part of the nature of things. And I was thinking about this, and, and in a sense, we, we kind of still practice this kind of uh, charitable giving with our leftovers today, uh, especially around Christmas time. Right? There's like food bins that are set, set up at different events or whatever, and, and we, bring our, we bring our food from our pantries and stuff, right? But we don't bring the stuff we want to eat, do we? we? We bring the stuff in our pantries that, that, that we don't think we're going to eat or the stuff that's been there too, for a while, right? We, we bring our leftovers, and, and we donate that to the poor. And you know, grocery stores and bakeries, we often hear that they're given to soup kitchens and food banks and all that stuff. That's awesome. That's great. But, but again, what they give comes from the extra food that they didn't sell that week, right? They want to give it to someone to eat before it expires. So there's nothing really wrong with that, right? And, and at least they can say the food is going to people who need it, even if it is their leftovers. But it's not really sacrificial giving, is it? Um, but yet, even more than that, within the context of a community of believers who are meant to be gathered together, that's the key word, together in Christ, and centered around the table of the Lord's Supper, to then separate ourselves by, by social class or wealth or anything else in, in any way, shape, or form, is actually a disgrace to what the church is meant to be, and worse, a blatant disregard for all that Jesus died for. In other words, how could they claim to be remembering and proclaiming the death of Christ when their very actions and attitudes in eating the supper were basically undoing the very thing his broken body and shed blood accomplished for them? Before Jesus' death on the cross, he prayed to the Father, that those who believe in his name would become divided? No, one, even as he and the Father are one. And, and so his, his purpose on dying on the cross wasn't just to rescue us from sin, but also to unify us all together in his name and for his glorious purpose. Romans 3.22 affirms this, this truth when it says that the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all. All who believe, for there is no distinction. There is no distinction. In, in other words, no one deserves the grace of God more or less than anyone else. All are saved from sin in the same way, only 
by the perfect work and grace of Jesus at the cross. We all come into salvation the same way, right? With that in mind, there, there, there really is no possible way that, that anyone could think that they're more important or more worthy than, than anyone else within the church, which, again, is what the wealthier believers in Corinth seem to be portraying and proclaiming by their actions in taking first dibs of the meal and letting others go hungry. Galatians 3.28 also says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Again, what this means is that there is no such thing as social class or any other kind of class system within the church. Through Jesus Christ, every single believer is equally important, equally valued, equally sealed by the Spirit, and equally given the same status as sons and daughters of the Father. No one deserves a better seat at the table than anyone else, regardless of how much they bring to the table. And yes, some of us will bring more to the table out of potluck than somebody else will. That doesn't matter. We're all equally on the same level. Like the early church in Acts models for us, we all share with one another and have everything in common. And this is something that, that the Apostle Paul will continue to emphasize in the last part of his letter to the church in Corinth. Corinth yeah, to the church in Corinth. But he also already mentioned it earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, and, and this is within the context of communion as well. And he says, he says there, he says, because there is one loaf, like one Jesus, right? We who are many are one body, for we all share the same loaf, the one loaf. We all share in what Jesus did for us, and so, Jesus, so through Jesus, we're one body with many equal members. So again, to, to perpetuate factions or class systems within the church, especially ones that are based on, on wealth or societal status, is to simply perpetuate a sinful and worldly institution that doesn't belong and cannot fit within the kingdom of God. But like the church in Corinth... You know, I don't think that they were necessarily doing this intentionally, right? It was just happening. And so, like the church in Corinth, I think sometimes we can perpetuate this in, in many ways that we may not even realize. For example, those moments when we avoid, we do something simple like we avoid or, or we refuse to converse or even sit with others of a different social class or a political leaning or background or whatever. I were like, I'm not sitting by that person. What are we proclaiming there? Right? Are we proclaiming Christ's death until he comes again? Are we proclaiming that I don't like that person? <laughs> right? How can we rightly share the Lord's Supper, which again calls us into unity, if we're not willing to simply sit beside or even talk to others who are different than us? There's nothing genuine or honest about that. That's just one example. And furthermore, when we receive communion while, while holding on to prejudice against other believers in the community, Paul writes, we only invoke judgment and discipline on ourselves because God's not going to have any of that in his house. When we, approach, when we approach the throne of grace, 
We have an opportunity to say, yes, Lord, I need your grace. And if we come to him and think, well, I don't need your grace. I deserve this or I'm entitled to this. God's going to be like, no, you need my grace. And he's going to let you know. He's going to discipline you because he loves you. So instead, you know, when we, when we meet together as the church, especially when it's a, a meeting that, that's centered around the Lord's Supper, the better option is to actually reflect and pursue the unity and oneness which Jesus gave up his life for, no matter what our place or status in society is. This, this is what Paul means when he, when he calls the church to receive communion in a worthy manner, right? It's to recognize that we all come to the table, all equally in need of his grace, all equally valuable to God through Jesus Christ. When we meet together, as Nelisa Oyola Diaz writes, it's an opportunity for us as a church, as a body of Christ, to become that home where people can belong. Where people from all backgrounds, economic, social backgrounds, come into the church and feel that this is the church of Jesus. Jesus is at the center. And it doesn't matter where you come from. When we receive the Lord's Supper together, it's to proclaim and reflect this picture. We come together, unified as the body of Christ, to center in on Jesus. We commune with Christ and with one another as we remember what he did for us in his death at the cross. And, and this is what Paul proceeds to remind them when, when he writes in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 26. He's like, no, th- this is what communion is. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to be participating in this momentarily, as we so often do. And, and again, it's, it's fitting that it'll be one of the last things we do together as the church this year. But before we do, I want to sum up for us four main aspects of, of communion, which this passage teaches us. Number one, again, it's for remembering and proclaiming Jesus' sacrifice. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. Again, says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so whenever we, we come to the table to receive the Lord's Supper, the broken bread and the wine, or we use cracker and a juice, it's, it's a call for us to remember that Jesus' body was broken in our place and that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, inviting us into a new and everlasting covenant with God. This, this morning's Advent reading was on love, and so it's fitting that Romans 5.8 reminds us that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what we're called to remember and, and reflect on with hearts of thanksgiving as we, as we come to the table. God's love given to us. That Jesus humbly and willingly gave his life for our sin. 
to, to rescue us, to redeem us, to justify us, to exchange his righteousness for our guilt as our perfect sacrifice. At the same time, though, when we, when we receive communion, we're also proclaiming this truth to others and to one another. In, in a sense, the, the, the action of eating the bread and drinking the cup is a profession of faith. Right? It's a public proclamation of Jesus' grace and his resurrection life for us. And it's a proclamation as well that we're, that we're committing to the way of Jesus. That, that we're joining with him in his death until he comes again. So number one, we proclaim his death until he comes again. Number two, communion draws us together. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17, again says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. I've already uh, spoken about this point at, at great length, so I'll let the late theologian Warren Wearsby sum this up for us. He writes, The supper should be a demonstration of the unity of the church. The Lord's Supper is a family meal, and the Lord of the family desires that his children love one another and care for one another. It is impossible for a Christian to get closer to his Lord while at the same time he is separated from his fellow believers. How can we remember the Lord's death and not love one another? Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. 1 John 4.11 So number two, communion draws us together as the body of Christ. Number three, communion also invites us to examine ourselves. It invites us to examine ourselves. 1 Corinthians 11.28 a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. So, of course, this, this is a reminder that, that communion isn't something we do flippantly. It's not just going through the motions or something we participate in because it's just part of the service order and everyone else is doing it. No, and, and, and neither is it something that, that we do selfishly or with disregard for anyone else. Right? It's It's serious. It's holy. It's, it's communal. And therefore, it must be received in a worthy manner. But let's not misinterpret that this doesn't mean we must be worthy to receive communion. It doesn't mean we have to be perfect, right, and sinless before we come before. No, that, that's, that defeats the purpose of it. Only Jesus is perfect and worthy, right? Rather, it says we should receive it in a worthy manner. Which means that as we examine ourselves, we should then come to a place of humble and honest recognition of our need for Jesus' grace. We sh we, so that we can receive it with an attitude of repentance, of confession of sin if needed, of, of deep thanksgiving, of joyful anticipation of Christ's return. And, of course, we should seek reconciliation with others if needed before we partake. As Jesus said, if you have something against your brother, lay down your offering before the altar, go reconcile with him, and then come back, right? Reconcile. How can we take communion if we're not reconciled with one another? And number four, finally, the Lord's Supper draws us into communion with God. 
While Jesus isn't physically present with us, obviously, it's a reminder that he is spiritually present, that by eating and drinking wine as Christ commanded the disciples, the Holy Spirit brings us not only into his salvation, but into fellowship and communion with the living Christ, who is our salvation. And so with all of this in mind, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I will invite you now to come forward and collect the communion elements, the cracker and the juice, and then make your way back to your seats so that we can receive it together as the body of Christ. Mm -hmm.